Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Phil Kwan. I'm one of the pastors at a church. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I'm uh, one of the pastors at a church just down the road in North Houston called Woods Edge. But uh, man, we are so excited. Uh, Brandy and I, our family, we're so excited to be here with you guys uh, this morning. Just like Chris said, um, uh, our family, we were a part of this church family for a number of years um, before COVID, uh, I, I got to serve as a student pastor. And in a lot of ways, I was just telling Chris that uh, the things that I got to learn uh, serving this community, I get to go and share that with a new community in Houston. We also have a Focus Conference. We do not have a t-shirt though. So definitely <laughs> sign up for Focus today. Like I don't even go here anymore. I'm telling you, sign up for Focus today. Well, I'm excited to share with you guys uh, a little bit of my life and my story, but most importantly, I'm excited to share with you from God's word. Now, before we dive into that, I would love for us to pray together. So would you join me in a word of prayer? You know, something I, I really appreciate, um, Cody was up here uh, inviting us to uh, know and remember God's goodness in the midst of heaviness and grief, a lot of us experiencing uh, some of that today. Uh, really, wherever you're coming from, whatever your week looks like uh, ahead, whatever it looked like before, this is a time and a space that God has made sacred. He has set aside, and he wants to speak to you. And so if you're up for it, with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I want to invite all of us to pray and ask God to speak to you today. Well, Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, God, that I get to be here. What a joy it is. What a privilege it is to be with people that I love, people that you love. And I ask God that, um, that the greatest gift, um, your voice, your presence, Lord, I pray that we would get to experience that, that we would hear your voice through your word and that it would change us and move us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when I was about four years old, my family, my mom, my dad, my brother, and myself, we all moved, immigrated from South Korea, where I was born, to the United States uh, so that my dad could earn his PhD in microbiology from Georgia State University. Go Panthers. Uh, more than that, though, it was an opportunity for our family to have a fresh start. My parents moved us to the other side of the world so that my brother and I could have a hope for a different kind of life, a new future. And I think a lot of uh, us parents in this room understand what that means, the willingness to sacrifice literally like everything you know so that your kids can have a better future. And so when we moved here many years ago, it came with a lot of hope and a lot of anticipation and a, a lot of excitement, but it also came, if I'm honest, with a lot of expectation, a lot of stress and anxiety and a lot of pressure on me and my little brother. 
the idea was, was that, you know, we had made these sacrifices to come to the other side of the world, and I felt like I needed to earn that sacrifice. I needed to demonstrate that I was worthy of that kind of move, and the way I could demonstrate that was by being a really, really good student. It wasn't just because I'm Korean that I was like, I have to be a good student. I was like, I have to earn this. And so I knew that every grade that I made was, was me proving that I was worthy of that kind of sacrifice. I knew that if I would make really good grades and go to a really good college, then my parents would feel honored. I would give honor to my parents' sacrifice. And so that became my devotion. That became the thing I was aimed at was earning the the grade so that I could go to a really, really good school. On top of that, however, was also the added challenge of being really poor. We were really, really poor because we left everything behind to come here to this country. We just didn't have the generations of wealth building that comes with being established in a country for a long time. And so not only was I thinking, I have to get into this amazing school, we also had no money and had no means to get me through that school. And so I also realized that my grades, my achievement in school was also going to pay for that school. So every grade, every test, every report card, all of that was like money in the bank. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a little kindergartner that you have to earn tens of thousands of dollars worth of scholarships uh, as you're like learning your ABCs, you know? And, you know, this is a square and this is a circle. That'll be... $10,000 of scholarship someday. Like that was a lot of pressure on me. And I was really, really stressed, as you can imagine. All growing up, that wasn't necessarily something my parents put on me. It was something that I felt myself. Um, Early on though, someone had told me that there was another way. There was another way to earn the money to go to school, at least solve the second part of that equation, that there was a surefire way that if you just this, did this one simple thing, that you could get a full-ride scholarship to anywhere you want to go, any college you want to go. And some of you parents are like, tell me, please. Like, really? Grades are fickle things, right? You, you, you don't always have control over that, but there's this one thing. Uh, and all I had to do was never miss a single day of school in my life. That is all I had to do. If I could get perfect attendance... K through 12, someone told me that there was a perfect attendance, never miss a day of school in your life, full ride scholarship to wherever you wanna go to scholarship out there. And I decided that that is what I was gonna devote my life to. I would never miss a day of school because if I could accomplish that, if I could devote my life to that and accomplish it, then I would get the satisfaction that I so desired. And then I did it. Guys, I did it. I did the thing. I never missed a day of school in my life. K through 12, 13, don't clap for that, that was terrible. (laughs) 13 consecutive years, never missed a day of school in my life, and if you're in this room thinking, well, didn't you ever get sick? Yes, definitely got sick. My And and if we went to school together, I am so sorry, because I definitely got you sick. My strategy was I would just drug myself enough to make it to school and survive until they took attendance for the day. It was at 10 a.m. on the dot, third period, I would get credit for being there, 
And then I would just collapse and my friends would drag me to the nurse's station and they would send me home because of course, that is not a good thing. But that's what I would do because I was like, I am devoted to this. This is what's going to get me what I, what I need. Uh, my, my family actually went on vacation in seventh grade. They went to San Diego and I, I didn't go with them. Like I, <laughs> I stayed with one of my dad's friends because I had to be there for French class. Like I had, I, so there are all these family photos of their vacation to San Diego. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not in there. Oh my gosh, what happened? Oh, right, 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 right. French final, got it. Um, so I did this K through 12, 13 consecutive years. Uh, senior year rolls around. Uh, I got into the school I wanted to go to and I go online to find my perfect attendance, never miss a day of school in my life, full ride scholarship. And wouldn't you know it, it does not exist. Guy, it doesn't exist. It's not real. Uh, and you would have thought that someone would have told me that or I would have figured that out in eighth grade or something, but, uh, but it doesn't exist. All I got was I got to shake my principal's hand at the end. That was my prize. That was my reward. And when I found that out, can I tell you, I was devastated. I was crushed because I realized that my whole life was a lie. And I had like completely wasted all of that time. For what? For nothing. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because I think we all understand what that feels like. Not the like devastation of realizing your life is a lie. Although maybe, maybe, maybe some of you today. Mostly what I'm talking about is this idea of devotion. That every one of us was made to be devoted to something or someone. That God has created us human beings hardwired for this need to be wholly devoted to something for a cause, a purpose, or a meaning. It's like our hearts are magnets and they're drawn to that purpose. And unfortunately, what happens in our world and the reason why there's so much brokenness and darkness and lostness in our world is because the thing that God has made us for devotion, we have rejected and we have chased everything that the world has told us we ought to be devoted to, all of the wrong kinds of things. Instead of chasing what God made us to be devoted to, we chase after vapor. We chase after dead ends and false promises. Our world tells us that if we would just work a little harder, to earn the right kind of grades and get into the right kind of school, then we will be happy. Or if we would just have the right kind of job and make the right kind of money so we could buy the right kind of things, live in the right kind of house in the right kind of neighborhood and marry the right kind of person. If we would just have the right kind of kids in the right kind of neighborhood in the right kind of city, then we will be happy. And my hope today is that this is not news to you, but that will never satisfy you. It will never be enough, because it is not what our hearts were made, designed to be devoted to. And so what do we do? We do one of two things, typically. We either close our ears to that reality, and we say, no, 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 there's one more hill to conquer. If I could just achieve one more thing, then I will be happy. We are looking for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. No pot of gold at this rainbow, so maybe the next one will satisfy. Or, or others of us, we have given up. We have given in to cynicism and said, you know what? There is no pot of gold. There is no achieving success enough. And so I'm not gonna be devoted to meaning or purpose. I'm just gonna be devoted to myself, 
to my own indulgences. So I'm not living for purpose, I'm just living for the weekend. Or I'm living for that glass of wine at the end of the day. Or I'm living for the next episode of whatever Disney Plus is gonna put in front of me. Or I'm living for just whatever will get me by. And we experience all of the grief that Paul will write about in Philippians chapter three, verse 19, where he says, the world's end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Isn't that true? That our world is broken because they are chasing after meaningless dead end things. So the, the natural question then for us is, then what are we supposed to be devoted to? What are we supposed to be devoted to? And what does it look like to actively and meaningfully pursue that purpose and devotion in our lives? Well, that's what we're talking about today. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 13 to 17, if you have it, you can open up there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. We're gonna throw it up on the screen. If you are just joining us, Wells Branch is in a series in the book of Mark today. We're gonna take a little pause to take a look at this story of devotion to seek to understand the motivation behind that devotion and discover what it teaches us about God's heart and desire for us as we devote ourselves not to ourselves or to the world's desires, but to God and his heart and his desires. We're gonna read the whole passage together and then we're gonna break it down. So 2 Samuel 23, verses 13 to 17, read along with me silently as I read aloud. It says... And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel 23, verses 13 to 17 is really just a scene and a larger description of a group of guys known in your Bible as the mighty men, David's mighty men, which Whenever I read that, I think it's so funny because obviously we understand what it's trying to communicate, but whenever you call them the mighty men, it just sounds really cheesy and dorky, mighty men. So we're gonna call them by their Hebrew name, the Giborim, which sounds way cooler. That sounds tough, you know, Giborim. So we'll call them the Giborim. This group of guys, the Giborim, were David's special forces. They were his strongest fighters. They were his fiercest warriors. And actually, if you read the passages immediately before and immediately after the passage we just read, you find out that these were some hardcore dudes. Some of them were worth hundreds of other soldiers. Others were worth literally thousands of soldiers. These were fierce fighters. But not only were they David's special forces, his fiercest fighters, they were also his confidants. They were his closest counselors. They were his dearest friends. In fact, when David would become king of the nation in the future, they were the ones who helped him rule the nation with him. 
They were his cabinet. They were his like secretary of state and secretary of defense. That's what they served as. So they were not just soldiers. They were also his friends. Uh, in this scene, we see them at their best. But actually, when we first meet them, they're not good at all. They're awful, awful when we first meet them. Uh, we first discover this group of guys in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. Uh, what's going on in David's life at the time is that he is on the run from King Saul. King Saul was the king at the time. He grew jealous of David because of David's rising fame. And so he decides to get rid of David permanently so David is on the run for, for his life. He has lost all his friends, all his money, all his power, all of his influence. He is at the lowest of his lows alone. And at that lowest point, he crawls into a cave in a place called a dullum and just wants to be left alone. As many of us would, right? At our lowest, we just want to be left alone. Unfortunately, David is not afforded that luxury because 1 Samuel 22 verse 2 says that quote, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. They all just crowded out his cave. They're like, I, I just really need to be alone. It's like, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Can I, can I sit here? <laughs> and it says that David became captain over them. These guys were not good dudes. They were not good fighters. They were not trustworthy people. They were the dropped out of school, can't hold a job, living out of your car, can I crash on your couch indefinitely kind of guys. And yet they would come to David and say, David, you're low, but I'm lower. And I'm tired of living, pursuing dead ends and false promises. Will you be captain over me? Will you help me? And David says, yes. And what happens after that is David is going to gather this group of misfits and he's gonna start teaching them how to fight. He's going to lead them into battle, into skirmishes to liberate villages and towns all throughout the Judean countryside. He's gonna teach them how to wield a sword and a spear. He's going to teach them to be fighters. But more than that, more than just fighters, he's also teaching them what it means to be a man of honor. He is teaching them who God is, what God is about, what God's heart is chasing after. He is teaching them to be worshipers. David was a famous uh, worship leader. He took scriptures and then he put them to music. He was a worship leader to God's people. He's teaching these boys how to sing songs of praise and how to fight like men. They became men of honor, of valor, of holiness, more than just soldiers. They were worshipers, more than just mercenaries. They were David's intimates. And so this is where we find David now. When we find David in 2 Samuel 23, we see that he's back in his cave in Adullam, but now instead of a band of misfits, he has his giborim. And as he's sitting in his cave, as he's standing at the mouth of his cave, he is thinking to himself about the reality that the enemy, the Philistines, has taken control of the entire region to the east of him, which also included, by the way, his hometown of Bethlehem. As he thinks about his home, the place where he grew up under the control of his enemy, he says to himself in verse 15, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He's not saying this to anyone in particular. He's just musing to himself out loud, oh, that someone would give me a drink from Bethlehem. Now, what is David saying here? 
He is not saying, I'm thirsty. He's not saying, I need a drink of water. Instead, he is using this as a metaphor. He's saying it metaphorically to say that he longs to see his home set free. This is the well that he drank from when he was a boy. He just wants to be able to walk into his home and get a drink of water from the place he was always able to since he was a boy because of what that would mean. It would mean that his home, his beloved town, is set free. It would be a lot like, you know, for many of you guys, you guys know that I went to Texas A&M University, the greatest university in the world, of course. Whoop. My beloved College Station, it would be like a bunch of T-sips from UT, went to College Station and laid siege to my beloved town and set up a garrison right there on A&M campus. And I, standing before you, said, oh, that someone would bring me a drink of Diet Coke from the fountain that is at Sabisa Dining Hall. Look, if I wanted a Diet Coke, I could just go out those doors over to CVS and buy one, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I want that Diet Coke, that one, because if I got that one, this is what it would mean. It would mean that my beloved A&M is free from oppression, right? That's what that would mean. And so that's what David is saying. He longs for his hometown to be set free. So as he's saying this, what happens? It says, verse 16, then the three Giborim broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. And I think it's so interesting that all we get is this one sentence. That's it. Because you have to remember like how crazy this is. All right? It, what it's saying is that as David is musing to himself, oh, that someone would bring me a, wa- a drink of water from Bethlehem, imagine David standing at the mouth of the gate, look, uh, uh, mouth of the cave, looking out on the horizon. And as he's saying this, three of his guys are sitting further back in the cave. And one of them says, hey, did you hear that? Did, did you hear what he just said? And the other guy's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Definitely. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes, for sure. I'm thinking that too. Should we get another guy? Should we invite Steve? Yes, definitely want Steve. Hey, Steve, what are you doing right now? Nothing. You want to you do a thing? Yes, absolutely. I'll go get my keys. That's what's happening right there, okay? And so these three guys grab all of their gear and they hike 10 miles to Bethlehem. They come up on the Philistine army and they start fighting their way into the city. They start killing dudes. They start pushing into the town. All the Philistines have got to be so confused. They're like, we're under attack. Yeah, yeah, by three guys. They only brought three. What do we do? I don't know. I don't know what to do, but they're killing us out there. So these three guys fight their way into Bethlehem. And then one of them just drops all of his weapons and starts pumping water into a bag. And then the other two guys are defending him. And they're like, sir, they're just here for water. They just give it to them. Let them go. I don't know. So they, they fight their way out of Bethlehem. Steve, of course, drops the water. It's like, Steve. And then they have to fight their way back in, get more water. And then they go out the gate and they hike the 10 miles back to Bethlehem. This is insane. Why would they do this? What is the point? What would cause this kind of devotion? This is so important. This is so important. Again, we learn throughout the Old Testament that these men were not just soldiers. They were David's closest friends. They weren't just mercenaries. They were David's intimates. 
they loved their captain. Notice that David never commanded them anything. He never gave a command. All he said was, I wish, I wish. And you know what these three guys said? They said, your wish is my command because I would do anything for you because of what you've done for me, because we love you. We will do anything because this is what love does. This is what happens when our actions follow our devotion. And I know this. Look, I remember many years ago uh, when Brandy and I, uh, we were pregnant with our first child. Uh, Samantha is nine years old now, which is bananas. Uh, But when many moons ago when we were pregnant, uh, we were living in the humble area of Northeast Houston. Most nights though, I was coming home from grad school uh, near Sugarland in Sharpstown. If you don't know anything about the Houston geography, it would be like if you lived in Liberty Hill and I was taking classes at UT campus, not a fun drive, right? But that was our life then. And because we were pregnant on the ride home, on the drive home at 10 p.m., we would talk on the phone about our day and how's it going, how's, how's the baby, all these kinds of things. And inevitably, the conversation would turn to food because, of course, And I remember those days, uh, Brandy would talk about how she longed for, craved after this very particular thing, a bean burrito from Taco Bell. That's what she wanted. (laughs) And on the phone, I would say, baby, I will get that bean burrito for you. She's like, no, 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 it's so late, just come home. I was like, no, no, if if that's what my my love wants, I will will kill those beans myself (laughs) and make that bean burrito to satisfy you and our baby. And that's what we would do. Bean burrito, no onions, mild sauce, extra mild sauce, because that's what love does. And not only does, does it do that, it does it with delight. It does it with delight. And that's what's happening here. The three devoted to their captain, they love him and they would do this wild thing simply because it would please him. So David sees them pulling up to the cave maybe early, early in the morning. They're all excited about their super secret mission to grab David his Diet Coke from Sabisa Dining Hall. What is David's response? Check out what it says. Does he just throw it back? No, it says that he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. What is going on here? Well, earlier in the book of Leviticus, we find out that one of the ways the people of God could demonstrate their affection and devotion, their worship to God, was they would take a cup of wine and they would pour it on the ground as a a sign, as a symbol of their gratitude and thanks for the sacrifice it required to secure victory for God's people. The the wine was symbolic of blood being shed to secure forgiveness and rescue for God's people. And David says, this isn't a cup of water. He says, shall I drink the blood of the men that went at the risk of their own lives? He says, this cup is like blood and I'm gonna pour it out. I'm not just gonna drink it, I'm gonna pour it out as a worship to God, which is amazing. Just imagine early, early in the morning, the sun is rising, all the other guys are asleep in the cave. David walks up to the three who are exhausted, but they are excited to hand David this drink. David says, what is this? And they go, oh, I think you know what this is. And then he pulls them in close. And he says, boys, you are crazy. And he says, I can't believe you did this. And he says, if you think that you did this on your own, you're wrong. And he brings them in close. He wraps them up in his arms. 
and he says, we gotta worship God for this. And he leads them in a moment of worship, a worship service. And these four men, shoulder to shoulder, forehead to forehead, weeping tears of joy, crying, laughing, celebrating, shouting. Everyone in the back of the cave is like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And can I just tell you something? That is what I want my life to be like. When I think about my captain, uh, I'm burying the lead here a little bit, but when I think about Jesus, my captain, on on the day I meet him face to face, that is the experience I want to have. So what does this mean for us today? Well, for those of us who aren't Christians in this room, you wouldn't say that you are. You are not a Jesus follower. Understand the question from the beginning, what kind of devotion we, were we made for? This story actually points us to the answer. This is a moment of remarkable devotion for sure as these three men who are transformed by the love of their captain were, find great joy in pursuing his heart. David in the Old Testament is presented as a picture, a foreshadowing of a future captain, a future king who would likewise call those who are lost to himself and transform them by his leadership. Another hometown hero of Bethlehem who would be called the son of David. This is Jesus Christ. That's who he is, who is now our better David and offers us rescue and purpose. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus didn't just... Uh, He didn't just long for the liberation of his people. He offered his life to secure it. And it wasn't the water from Bethlehem. It was his blood that was shed on the cross to say, you are now my people. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that anyone who would receive him to those who believe in his name, God would give them the right to be called children of God. Not just mercenaries, but his intimates, his friends. For those of us who are Christians in this room today, I wanna challenge you to really consider your own devotions. What is it that your heart is devoted to? Do you long for the things of God? Do you long for Jesus' heart the same way that these three long for the heart of their captain? And when I think about devotion, I think about this moment in my life and really like our family's life. I want to be known as someone who's devoted to the heart of Jesus. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to say yes to the thing that I said yes to. When Brandy and I were finishing our seminary years, uh, we were praying and asking God for a place to be devoted to. Uh, We had been at this commuter church for so long. Basically my entire life, my only experience of church was driving across town to a church where you experienced the thing and then you just went home, where you didn't know your neighbor's it was just, it was, that's what I knew of church. And so coming out of seminary, we were praying, Lord, would you give us an experience of loving a city to love what you love? Show us your heart for a place and a community. And at that point, we had been invited to serve at another commuter church in Pennsylvania. And we thought that that's where we were unfortunately going to have to go. No offense to Pennsylvania, but we're like, oh, okay. Until we got a call to come and visit a little church plant that was meeting in Austin, North Austin, uh, in a little place called Wells Branch. They were meeting at a community center in a basketball gym. And I went to go serve, uh, I went to go speak uh, to a student ministry that met at Kenny's Coffee at Bratton Square. (laughs) So you guys remember Kenny's Coffee. Um, And even though there were just 12 teenagers there, 
and this church was set up and tear down, we saw the incredible love that you guys had for a city and a neighborhood, for your neighbors and for your community. And we said, we see Jesus's heart in you. And we would be so privileged to get to be a part of chasing Jesus's heart with you. It was there we first learned how to love a city, to love a community, and most importantly, to learn what it meant to experience Jesus's heart for a city. Guys, Jesus loves this city. And in 2017, as an exercise, I wrote a letter to the city. And I wanna encourage all of you to do the same. It is really easy for us to forget Jesus's heart for Austin. So I wrote this, I wanna read it to you. I wrote, dear Austin, I wasn't born here, but I'm here now because God loves you. Dear Austin, I am so amazed at how wonderfully strange and diverse you are. From the farm silos of Hutto to the suburbs of Cedar Park, the bungalows of Midtown and the strange upside down of what's south of the river. <laughs> I love the way you welcome people of all kinds but still have a not so quiet pride on the inside experience of a time before everyone started moving here. I call it Town Lake only because I've heard from others, natives, that that's the right way to say it. Sure, I feel like a bit of an imposter, like I didn't earn that right, but I like to think that I'm not judged too harshly for it. Even though some people think it's a bit elitist or obnoxious, I think it's great. I love experiencing your culture, Austin, and your culture of culture. I love that there's so much new and so much old and how you love striving into the new all the while fighting to preserve what is old. Austin, I love that you're famous for barbecue, the meatiest of meats, but you also love vegan, gluten-free, non-GMO organic restaurants too. <laughs> Austin, I love that you love Starbucks and I love that you hate Starbucks. <laughs> I love that you have festivals celebrating technology but you also protect vast stretches of wildlands and green belts. I love that you have kite festivals. Seriously, it's just hundreds of people spending their afternoon untangling knots, but it's so beautiful. Austin, I love that you love kids and sometimes you love dogs more than kids. Actually, I don't understand that one, but I appreciate that some people love that anyway. I love that right there at the heart of your city is half a square mile where literally tens of thousands of young people gather every day to learn and grow and discover how to operate in this world. I love that the university is the entire globe concentrated onto a single point. And we Christians say that God wants to reach the entire world. If you ever felt like we haven't reached out to the world right there on campus, I am so sorry. We are wrong and we, don't, and we want to make it right. I'm sorry that people have said the fastest way to kill a church is to fill it with college students because they think your young people have nothing to offer. But I would rather kill that church and love you well than keep you out to protect my own institutional agendas. I love that right there in the middle of campus is a building with the words, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, emblazoned in stone for all to see. All to see. Did you know that Jesus said that? and that he was talking about himself and not some humanistic sense of self-realization. 
I know people want to label you, to categorize you. They call you the blue island in an ocean of red or the hole in the Bible belt. But I've learned that you are way more complicated than that. And I love that. I love that because I know God loves that. God loves how colorful and vibrant you are because he loves music. God loves art and food and ideas and passion, all of that. And I'm sorry, Austin, that people have said that parts of you are unreachable or not strategic. Jesus died to rescue you, all of you, not just the strategic places where people are amiable to a particular brand of religiosity. Austin, I love you, but I know there is so much hurt in you too, so much violence in you too, people trying so hard to make you into their own image and willing to cut down anyone who doesn't look or sound or dress or act or value things the way that they do. And I hate that people have turned everything into a polemic to try and wage culture wars on your street or run and hide and pretend like they don't happen. And that's why this love isn't just infatuation, it's desperation. It's everything I can do to tell you that there's hope and it's a hope that's more than just politics or policy, historical preservation, or another festival. There's hope that's more than building another central market or getting Lyft and Uber back or convincing Samsung to build a new headquarters here. Did you know that the church is praying for you constantly? Praying for revival. But if I'm honest, I was too scared to really think about what that would look like and what that would cost but I love you too much to keep praying weak, vapid, abstract prayers for things like healing and peace in the city because I wanna see you really live. So I'm praying that in every house, in every neighborhood, on every street and in every store, every restaurant, in every classroom and in every park, Austin, that you would hear the truth that God loves you to death and back. And I'm praying that you would be willing to hear it and I'm praying that we would be willing to walk up to you and share it. Today, church, God's word is challenging us to say yes to our captain's heart. That David longed for a drink from Bethlehem, a town he loved. Do you hear now Jesus' heart for a drink from Austin, a city he loves? As the band comes back, I wanna challenge you. What does it really look like to be a Christ follower devoted to Jesus' heart for this city. It means living in community with brothers and sisters in this local church. It means Aggies willing to wear Longhorn hats and go down to UT campus and share the life-changing reality of Jesus with college students who need to know that the church here loves them and wants to see them rise. It means serving the poor, the least, the weak, the marginalized, it means leveraging resources to plant new churches, new epicenters of hope. It means refusing to gossip. And it means forgiving one another when we hurt each other. And as we live this way, pursuing our captain's heart, we'll see our city change. Just like David and his boys will come together, not just to sit in seats and listen to talks, but really to celebrate and worship Jesus' heart. Today, we get a preview of that. Ceremony in a that we do here 
at Wells Branch and in churches all over this city. Just like David poured out a cup as an act of worship, the church is called to take up a cup and a piece of bread as an act of worship for our captain who offered himself as the means to set us free from our sin and death. And one day to see this city set free from darkness. We do that through a thing called communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered in a room with his intimates, his closest friends, the disciples. And at the table, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then taking the cup of wine, the wooden cup is wine, the glass cup is grape juice, the fruit of the vine. He says, this wine is my blood shed for you to wash away your sins so that anyone who would drink it would have new life. And he says, every time you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. And so church, we're gonna take communion today to remember that victory on the cross, but also knowing that there is a victory coming when Jesus will rescue the city of Austin out of the grip of darkness and death. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you, Lord. You are so good. And the love that you have for us overflows. I pray, God, it would overflow to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to every corner of this beloved city. Lord, the city of Austin, may it be city of God. And I'm asking, Lord, that as we take communion now, we would remember your son who died on the cross and rose from the dead to secure that victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, church, what a joy it is for us to experience the heart of our captain, Jesus. And as we go from this place, as we head to lunch or head home, I wanna encourage all of us to consider what God's word has told us and taught us today, that Jesus loves this city and longs for it to be set free. And so wherever you are, whether you are taking a walk at Catherine Fletcher Park or hanging out at Lakeline Mall or swimming at Barton Springs or whatever there is to do in Pflugerville, I don't really know, like whatever it is, I used to live there. Take a minute to breathe in the air and ask Jesus, will you give me a love for this city to see it transformed so that I could bring you that cup of water you so desire? So church, go and be the church everywhere in this city. Go and bring the life-changing reality as you love God, love people, and make disciples all over the city of Austin. Push back that darkness and have an awesome week of worship. You're dismissed. <laughs>